I'm Olga Stella, the Executive Director of Design Corps Detroit. Welcome to the Detroit City of Design podcast. As stewards of Detroit's UNESCO City of Design designation, we hope to take you through a journey to become more inspired and aware of how design can be used to create the conditions for better quality of life and economic opportunity for all. Today, I'm here with Suchi Reddy, founder of the architecture and design firm ReadyMade. From her public installations in New York to her work on spaces that are designed to promote healing, Suchi's firm is committed to a human-centric approach to design. She is constantly assessing the economic, social, environmental, and cultural impact of her work. Suchi is a graduate of the University of Detroit Mercy School of Architecture. Welcome, Suchi. Well, thank you so much for having me on this. It's really a delight and a pleasure. I mean, Detroit's just such a special place for me, especially in my history of coming to this country and being the first place where I actually began to put down some roots. So I'm very, very happy to be here. Why don't we start there? First, maybe tell me a little bit about yourself and about you know your practice as an architect. So I... I'm an architect, as you know, um, and designer of just about everything. People always ask me, what do you do? I say I'm an architect. And the second question is, what do you specialize in? And I've really specialized in diversity. I really think that architecture is essentially about thinking in a borderless way. And that could mean thinking about anything. It could mean thinking about a wheelchair. It could mean thinking about a curb cut on the street. It could mean thinking about a city. It could be everything in between that. So, you know, I've really been lucky enough to develop a practice that does that. But, you know, this is all... I started, actually, um, with architecture school in India. I was born and raised in Chennai in India, which is... It's now called Chennai. It used to be called Madras. And I came here at the age of 18. I was married. um, And my husband at the time was doing a residency in Pontiac. So we moved to Detroit. And I lived in Pontiac and then moved into the city and lived in Royal Oak for a bit um, while I was going to school at U of D. I was so grateful to have had my architectural education in Detroit because it really is one of those unique American cities that has such a sense of history. It's really hard to find that anywhere else, and it doesn't surprise me that it's the only American city to be uh, UNESCO's city of design because it really does have a pedigree and a kind of huge impact of the decisions that were made in Detroit that sort of re- still continue to reverberate around the world. And the fact that I really learned a lot in Detroit, everything from uh, American music, I became a fan of jazz and architecture at the same time. That's wonderful. And do you feel that that time in Detroit and in your studies at the University of Detroit Mercy influenced the way that you practice and the next steps that you took in architecture after you left here? Absolutely. I tell everyone in my practice, in my studio, there's two things they need to do. One is to write poetry, and two is to never leave an idea alone. Because everything that you learn, everything that you look at, it always comes back to you in some form when you've digested that knowledge, right? So some of it, you may just not be ready to know what it is. So right. I remember being, you know, incredibly impressed in Detroit with these beautiful buildings, like amazing examples of American architecture. And also, you know, places like Belle Isle, that was, there really is nothing like Belle Isle anywhere else. We think so, too. (laughs) You know, and uh, this was a long time ago. So it was the days when hip-hop was just getting big and people would be there with their boomboxes. And it just had this, like, amazing energy and this incredible feeling that you you can just imagine this wide-eyed immigrant girl, you know, going, wow, 
so yes, it completely is responsible for me developing a sense of wonder, which is one thing that I do try to keep in most of my projects. If there's a place that we can have people have a moment of ah, we like to do that. So I would say Detroit has had a huge influence on me. In your career, you've lived in a couple different places around the country before settling in New York. Tell us a little bit about that and about maybe how those experiences all ladder up to your practice in New York now. Probably one of those unusual immigrant trajectories. You know, I didn't land in one of the big cities. I I came to Birmingham, Alabama, which is where my husband is from, and we moved to Detroit. And from there we moved. I think I've lived in eight states. I've lost count. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's just quite a few of them. And I always had this joke that I was going to write the American Diary someday, that everyone says America is all the same everywhere. And I think that's so not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've lived in so many places, and I think places have their own identity, their own spirit, and definitely their own imprint on you, mm-hmm. you know. And you learn different things from different places, and the weather is different, the landscape is different. It's such an amazing country, and it can let you experience all of this without leaving the borders. Pretty great. So as you reflect I mean, on the you know last 20, 30 years since you did your studies in Detroit and, and have developed your practice and being able to come back and see the changes in the city, I mean, what's your perspective on the way the city has been developing and, you know, having a little bit of a foot inside it and a little bit of a foot outside of it? You know, in the days when it was going through some of its darkest times, I have to say I wasn't in Detroit. I was in other places. Mm-hmm. and. I remember being really disturbed by it. And, of course, when I came back and I saw that my friends were revitalizing this, this place by opening restaurants and, like, you know, doing all of this, it was really incredible. But the thing I will say about where I think it is, I think it has so much potential. Like, if you talk to anyone outside of Detroit now, or at least for the last, I would say, four years, the first thing someone would say, oh, my God, Detroit is so cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? These are people who have never been to Detroit. Right. You know, and they're like, oh, maybe real estate is really inexpensive and we can still buy it. I said, I actually, I'm not quite sure of that. You right, know? that's right. It might all be taken. I mean, it's not to say that there's no opportunity, you know. Right. But it's kind of amazing that to me, you know, there's a sense of pride that comes up, right, because you're like, oh, my God. Detroit doesn't have to do anything to be cool. Right. You know, <laughs> we think so. There really is that. You know, it does have this heritage. It does have this pedigree. And it was just so beautiful to be able to come back. And, you know, I was, I was staying in Lafayette Park with some friends. And it was really wonderful to be able to experience that place and really to know, like, the history of, of design from, like, Nizaman Road to Shinola. You know, that the city is this vital place. A place like Pony Ride supported all of these amazing people and just the fact that you didn't have to worry about the burden of rent yeah. made all of this possible. Yeah. And that is something we can't dream of in a city like New York. You know, I love New York. It's my home. And I wish we had something like that here and we just don't. It's a, one of those things that we might end up losing here, too. I mean, that's, I think, part of the challenge in Detroit right now is something like Pony Ride was possible because... Things were so undervalued, and you had people like Phil Cooley who just believed in the possibility, the potential. I think the question will be is more traditional developers come in and traditional capital comes in. 
How do we right. how we maintain that? I think is something that we're all struggling with to, to figure out. I think that's actually where you have such a huge advantage. I mean, really, the pedigree of the city in design and its choice of amazing architects. Uh, it's a really great place to start from again. Right. To say that you're not going to allow the same kind of mindless development that happens to happen yeah. in a lot of places. Yeah. You know, and I really think you have the chops. <laughs> Somebody's just got to put their foot down. There's got to be new codes, new regulations, things that protect it. Yeah, I definitely you know. agree. I agree. And I think one of the things that we're thinking about, too, is how do you make sure that lots of different voices are part of that process Mm -hmm. and that there's inclusion, not just in people being able to access the public spaces and the businesses, but also in really in developing them. And I'd love Mm -hmm. to, to hear more. I mean, you have so many different identities, right? You're an immigrant to this country, a woman, a person of color. When you think about what all those different identities bring to your work, can you talk a little bit about the difference that it might make? Yeah, how sure. Perspective is everything. And there's one thing as an architect I treasure. It's this idea of really being um, what I call in a liminal space. It's mm-hmm. always nice to be on that threshold between this and that, because this means you can look all around you and you can see what the influences are here and what the influences are there. And you can bring them together. And there's always also this excitement of like crossing from one way or kind of thinking into another, you know. And I've always found that, I mean, for me, just to integrate all these different parts of myself, luckily, New York has offered me a wonderful home where it's been easy to do that. People are very accepting here of lots of different ways of doing things Mm -hmm. and being. And you could be a different person tomorrow if you wanted to. (laughs) And people would be okay with that. Right. And so it's been a friendly place to be able to actually develop all these sides of my personality and really give them full voice. But the thing that I see in terms of work or even when we're working on a project where we're bringing together people who have different agendas, people who have different viewpoints on something, is the same thing that you do always, right? You come back to what is common to all of this? You know, what's your common goal? And sometimes establishing that common goal takes a lot of time. You've got to think about how it serves everyone and how it maybe serves a new idea that doesn't belong to any single Mm -hmm. entity. And that's kind of how I deal with all the different sides of my personality, too. (laughs) I don't necessarily say, well, this is what, you know, this is influenced in this way by what I bring from my upbringing and my uh, my heritage from India. This is how I feel today in New York. And this is who I am from being someone that's from another place Mm -hmm. here. So it really is this question of really having this kind of kaleidoscopic lens, which I think is really what one needs. Because when you bring it into focus, when you bring that kaleidoscope into focus and you see all these different parts that come together to make something beautiful, that's architecture. We do that all the time. Right. You know, that's our problem solving. So, yeah, I think in a way you could say I've I've kind of problem solved my, my, my personality and my history into coming together to some kind of unity. Listening to you and and talking about the kaleidoscope of different perspectives and backgrounds, I mean, it just really kind of reinforces this, this is opportunity in the United States and then really across the world to maybe be thinking and working more in that way. And given that practice of architecture and in general design is, um, you know, traditionally male, traditionally Caucasian, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, how, how do you see that showing up more and more as the practice evolves? 
the, the argument for why it's important. Do you feel like that drumbeat is, is growing within the practice of architecture? Absolutely. I definitely think it's growing. Is it growing fast enough? No way. We still suffer. I think we it's something like 2.7% of all licensed architects yeah. are women. And the number of women in, of color in that are even smaller. Yeah, 0.3%. We have a, right. a partner here in Detroit who's trying to develop the next 400 women of color in, in architecture. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, absolutely. You know, and it's so low. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I get asked this question quite a bit, actually. The thing I always say is that while it's not, I don't think, particularly helpful to look at what we do from the lens of gender, it's also very important not to forget ever the reasons for who we are and why we are and where we are, you know? So when you go into a meeting, you could say, this still happens to me. You know, I still get people who assume that because I'm a woman, I must be the decorator. Right. (laughs) I can't be the architect. I've even had contractors call me decorators and have to correct them. I will have all the subliminal things like pushing back on certain things that you know if it was a man on the other side would never get that pushback. Mm -hmm. You know, these are from people that if you ask them, do you have a bias against women? They would say no. Right. Right. You know, so there is that subconscious level at which people operate where they're automatically making these judgments about you that have nothing to do with what you bring to the table. And essentially, I always like to tell young women when I meet them and when we're talking to classes and things, I always tell people, just look at it through the lens of being open, you Mm -hmm. know, as as open to who you are as to who that person is on the other side, you know, judging you basically for where you might come from and what you may know or not know. Um, And, you know, also as an immigrant, this kind of thing is, is tripled, right? Because your language skills are important. I was lucky that I grew up speaking English, and so it was fairly easy for me to make the transition to America, but there are people for whom that's very difficult. Right. And that's automatically another set of biases that start operating. So the only thing I can say about that is I think that I do everything in my power to encourage women to be architects, to support the women architects in my firm. I think we're we might even be a majority right now. I don't, I would have to count. But also, really, just to say, keep in mind that you can do anything that that other person can do. Right. You know, we were actually just joking the other day. One of my staff was, he was looking at a zoning code or something, and he said, Oh, I don't know what this means. And I said, God bless you that you, as a man, can just say, I don't know what this means. <laughs> <You> <laughs> right. For a woman, you said that. You would be, you know, like, oh, you you know, little girl. Yeah. You? No, yeah. Go over there while you, while you don't know that. You know, so I would like the freedom for women to be able to be really open and be who they are and be unafraid of presenting in another way. Because I also think there's a very important part to being a woman in architecture, which is also not to forget our feminine sides. You know, it's like people tend to think this is a male art. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I certainly didn't think of it that way. I never thought my house, even though my house was designed by an architect who was a man, I never thought of it as a male space. You know, it was a space. So these kinds of things, I think, have to be taken out of the cultural subconscious. And that can only be done through education. And when you think about, when you talk about the feminine side that women can bring to architecture and to spaces, 
for our listeners, what are some of those things? How can they start to visualize what that might be? I don't want to presume that, you know, men cannot understand these similar kinds of things. What I meant to say really was that as a woman, there is a way in which sometimes I've seen people get as harsh as men can be mm-hmm. in a situation because architecture is an art of collaboration. Right. It really is. No one does this alone. It's like making a film. You know, you've got people who all have to get together to understand what we're building and how we build it and mm-hmm. you know, go with all the decision making along the way. So in order to be able to bring all of those people together, I think there is a way in which women are very good at bringing people together and trying to understand different points of view. It's a little bit easier, I think, for women to do that than it is for men. Now I might be just speaking for myself. Yeah. (laughs) You might have 100 male listeners calling in going, what is she talking about? (laughs) No, um, I think I agree. (laughs) There are things that we do, and in the sense of even being sensitive to or caring about the nuances of feeling, right, within even your team, even your work team. Right. You can pick up if someone's having a great day, sometimes a bad day. All of that creative energy goes together to make the project. So you really want your team to be in a good place, making good work. And I think it helps to be a woman, but honestly, I'm not a man, so how right. do I know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a it's kind of a different it's a story different scale. now. But yeah. yeah. I read a little bit about your upbringing in India and the influences of your mother. And this is all sparking for me this question around the environment that Detroit could offer young teenagers and young people in our city to maybe inspire them to pursue careers in architecture and design. And maybe just a few words about what really led you down that path when you're 18 years old. What spoke to you and said, this is what my, you know, my future holds for me? It's a funny thing. It's like my father was very unusual in that he did hire an architect who was a friend of his to design our house. And I just always knew growing up that I was different from my friends because of the way my house was. Mm-hmm. I just knew it. Somehow in the back of my head, I just knew that. So for me, it really was what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be an architect. And um, well, I did have one other choice. It was being an anthropologist. But I think that was me. might have been the only thing in, that my father ever dissuaded me from. <laughs> but, you know, it was a long road getting to architecture school. I got all the best grades and I didn't get in because we had our version of affirmative action. And because I actually came from a, an educated, my father was the first to be educated in his family. But to because I came from not what we call scheduled castes and tribes, there weren't that many seats that were open. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even get in. And then I had to sort of fight to get in. And then I came here and, you know, I was encouraged to have a family and have children Mm -hmm. and focus on that. And I had to also fight uh, somewhat to follow my passion. So I think all of these things, you know, it's like these early experiences of like being in my house and feeling the light from different places and knowing what that did to me, it, it makes a big impression on a child. Yeah. And this has now led me to my work in neuroaesthetics and the work that I'm doing with Johns Hopkins in the Arts and Mind Lab there. Because I've always felt that the way architecture makes you feel is extremely important. And lately I've been chanting, you know, form follows feeling, form follows feeling. This is what it has to do. It has to make you feel a certain way. And the director of the Arts and Mind Lab there called me to say, 
would you be interested in looking at a design for a room where children who are recovering from comas could be in a space where the design could possibly help them recover faster and we could have a medical team available who would also be testing this. So it's almost like creating a spatial prescription that went along with the medical treatment. And obviously that was like such a huge, amazing idea. How has that been going? I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about is the room complete and how's the research in, in terms of the utility of the room, the impact of the room been going? It has. Well, we haven't built it yet. We've done the design. We've fundraised it. We are ready, I believe, to get started later this summer. And hopefully we will see the prototype before the end of the year. And the thing about it is whatever we find from it will have far-reaching implications. And um, the idea, I think, is eventually to come up with a model that would make for a great hospital or would make for great care for people. Yeah. So... I'll keep you posted. Yeah. We're very excited about it. I mean, that would be great because I think this is one of those topics where I don't think anyone would think of design as having a place in in neuroscience and in this kind of, of healing or in a hospital. And yet potentially every single decision that gets made in a hospital can be influenced by design. So when people ask you about it, how do you help them see that connection between design and, and healing? Essentially, I mean, as humans and bodies, if we just take a minute to think about who we are and what we live in, our, the us, what we inhabit, and to know how that's affecting us and our spirits, is then architecture just becomes an extension of the body. You know, it becomes a place where it just grows out and creates a space around you. So that's generally how I get people to see it. And also, just as a kind of quantum physics buff, this idea that all we are is particles and everybody's vibrating at this like slightly different level and when you get to organize these things in different ways so that these vibrations and resonances can happen to form things and to form shapes and to form cities and worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, that's essentially how we're made. So to really go back to that is to understand the truth of who we are as human beings, you know, to really understand that in our environment, our environment has as big of an impact on us as we do on it because mm-hmm. we tend to think we're the actors we're making everything i mean if everybody looked at their lives and examined any single moment like this moment you and me talking the number of things outside of our control that had to happen to bring us to this right it's a pretty magical universe we live in so i don't know if that answers your question it's probably very roundabout but the other project we're doing we're doing a project with google about neuroaesthetics it's Salone in Milan, uh, which opens April 9th. Oh, wonderful. And, yeah, it's called A Space for Being. And it really is about finding out how your body responds to space. So we're trying to bring some science into it and some data that can support the idea that, you know, your environment really affects you. And here it is. You can see it. Yeah. Well, I think that has so many implications, especially for... Um so we think about kids and, and we think, you know, whether it's their schools, hospitals, you know, other kinds of public spaces, or even as workers in the spaces that we're working. You know, I think a lot of times we only think about the aesthetics and we, we don't mm-hmm. think about the interplay between the aesthetics, functionality and the, you know, the psychology of it all. Right. I mean, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, good architecture will always do that to you. Yeah. You know, because a good architect is always thinking about 
where the light's coming in is not just a question of, yes, the sun's on this side of the building and this is where it needs to come in, but it's also how much of that light do you let in? How do you modulate it? Is it really direct? Is it harsh? Is it bright? Is it reflected? All of these things do different things to you. They make you feel different. The amount of vitamin D that your skin is getting because you're exposed to a certain kind of light is different. And so on a physics and basic sort of physics and chemistry level, your environment is always affecting you. In all of the studies that I've been seeing and looking at, there's a huge amount of data on how sound affects people. And we design spaces without thinking about how they sound. Right. So many hard, beautiful surfaces and shiny materials. (laughs) (laughs) And all they're doing is bouncing sound around and making it very hard for anybody to get any work done. (laughs) Exactly. Or to to just feel restful, you know. I mean, there are some studies, these are real, you know, this has been the fun of tracking neuroscience and architecture, is that when you walk across a very ugly block of buildings, your blood pressure goes up. Yeah. And, you know, we all know that. You go down the street and you're like, oh, I want to get to the end of this block, right? You're just doing it. You don't think, actually, you just think, oh, I'm just in a rush to get to the other side because this is boring. But what it's really doing is creating an effect in your body that you're responding to. Yeah. And that's part of the possibility that good design has in Detroit. You think about the psychological stress of residents of all backgrounds trying to get from home to work, sometimes on streets that aren't that beautiful or, you know, in front of buildings that uh, need, you know, investment or in spaces that are functional, but maybe are a little bit too hot and don't let in natural mm-hmm. light and, you know, all these kinds of things. And it, where, it wears you down. It, it doesn't give you the chance to fully participate in society, fully participate, you know, as a human every day. Absolutely. And, you know, from the kind of practical side of trying to, like, make all of these things happen in the real world, it's a challenge. Yeah. There's always, you know, budget. There is always time. There's always the client's expectations. But I think the thing that could really change it is if we as a community, as a society, begin asking and expecting more out of our environment. Mm-hmm. You know, it does. we ask. This is what it should be. We shouldn't settle for less than that, really. Right. And everybody should have access to it, not just some people who can afford it. Yeah. Right. Well, I can't wait to see more about the project with Google um, and and learn more about it. It, Will it launch on April 9th? Yeah, it is. Actually, there's press out about it. I think it's out on Instagram today. So if you look up Space for Being, you will find it. It's not by no means a scientific project, but it is an experiential project. It will be very interesting. We're creating three spaces that have different feelings and uh, you'll get to see how you feel. That's really wonderful. And Maybe you think you're an A and you're actually a C. A C, right. (laughs) And what will you do with the information afterwards? Like what will happen after? No, it gets deleted. None of your information. Oh, okay. Will there be some kind of body of work or something that afterwards that is published about it or some kind of takeaway or something um, after the there experience? Is, yeah, there's, there's a personal takeaway. A person will be able to take away their imprint, mm-hmm. um, how they responded to the space. And then I think we'll just have to see what it looks like um, when everything is collected and see how it carries on. Oh, that's great. The only other kind of set of questions that I had was you've done some really beautiful public space work recently, the Prospect Park Connective Project Mm -hmm. and the X in Times Square. And take us a minute or two to talk a little bit about that and how it relates to your practice and maybe the similarities and differences between the two projects. Sure. 
So public projects, you know, for us are amusing. We were, I'm a small woman owned, we're a 15 person firm, which isn't super small, but it's, you know, fairly small and we don't really get to do public work very often. So for the Connective Project, which is a community engagement project that was devised by a, a company called Area 4, asked me to design kind of a sculptural exhibit that would celebrate the 150th anniversary of Prospect Park. I went right back to what Detroit taught me, look for <laughs> wonder, you know, <laughs> um, back to my, you know, as, as a New York stick does, uh, always drawing from, maybe not as a New York stick does, maybe as I do, draw from a lot of childhood experiences. So I was trying to find that one element in the public space, in public art that relates to everyone. You know, because what makes public art so different than working for a client or for a particular program is really that it's being seen by everybody with lots of different lenses. So for it to communicate what it needs to communicate, you really need to find that thing that people will respond to. And for the connective, I was really drawn to this idea of the pinwheel. Mm-hmm. Also because a, a pinwheel is just a thing of wonder and, it, it, you know, everyone smiles when they yeah. see a pinwheel. Yeah, and, that's true. And we needed a way in which we could print uh, the artwork that was being collected and curated, et cetera, by Area 4 to be printed, to be shown. And we figured out that we could make the pinwheels out of a composite stone paper that wouldn't disintegrate in the weather and created this sculptural, waving, beautiful installation around three pools. And these pools were dry. I tried to fill them with water, but we didn't have the budget to get them to work. So we turned them into galleries and made the art that people made could be seen both from the inside and the outside. And we took one of the pools also and built a bridge into it so it would be accessible for people in wheelchairs so that they could come in and get the same experience that everyone else would. And I have to say one of the most satisfying moments of that entire thing was when I saw this wonderful lady wheeling herself up the road to come and see this project and go on that bridge and really have, you know, the full experience. And she was so happy. And she stays in touch. You know, she checks in to see if we're doing anything. It's really lovely. That's Um, wonderful. Yeah. So that, I think the thing about that project was really that it, because it's in nature and because the pinwheels could, you know, track the wind, you would see this kind of invisible force kind of go through the field and it would be really beautiful and kind of bring you back to this sense of being in a park. While the X sculpture that we did at Times Square is also very contextual and very different because of where it is. Mm-hmm. You know, X had to be where it is because X marks the spot. X is marks an intersection. X is a remnant of Times Square's vestigial triple X history, mm-hmm. you know, but also because the brief for the project was to think about justice and love and how those things show up both in private and in community. We really were thinking about how when you insert equality or justice into divided communities, you can find love. And so to express that tectonically, we had an X, we cut a circle through the intersection and you saw a heart. And it was really wonderful to see the kind of interaction that that sculpture got. Like when you got onto the platform, it gets brighter and you see the heart and you can read into difference, add equality, find love. And it was amazing. We had everything from music videos to weddings happen in there. Oh, that's so wonderful. It's so unbelievable. You know, it's so wonderful to be able to make something that people enjoy and people relate to and people love having. 
And the people will come to me and be like, oh, my God, what do you mean? It's coming down? It's not going to stay there? <laughs> you know? And it really was super satisfying. So what I would say is both of those works have been a source of great joy and satisfaction from the perspective of being able to communicate an idea to people. You know, and in the end, architecture is about communication. What you want to do is really be able to get a message across. And in both cases, it seems like the people who were viewing it were also able to participate in it and, and participate yeah. in the art making in a way. And it, that's a really wonderful thing, you know. It is really impressive when you see how people think about something you do. Like as an architect, it's always like, even when a photographer comes in to take pictures, it's always such a beautiful thing to see how someone else looks at the work. Mm-hmm. And then they see it from a different vantage point. And this is like seeing that, you know, talk about a kaleidoscope. You get a lot of different visions of the same thing. And we've been very lucky that both projects were super well received. Well, I think we're going to wrap up now. And then my last kind of last closing question for you is just about what do you see as you think about, you know, the field of architecture and your own practice and the coming years, what are the trends that, that you're looking out for that you think that that we should be looking out for as, as people who care about inclusive growth in cities? I really think that this idea of architecture and the body is going to be very, very, very important. We are getting to be a much, much more data-driven society, and it's quite easy to really quantify experience, and I think that's going to be something that becomes something we're going to have to deal with. And, you know, things like driverless cars are going to change our cities. Mm-hmm. We will have so much more space that we will need to figure out creative uses for. I don't think that the world will really look very much the same in about 50 years. I think it's going to look very different. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. I'm super thrilled to have had this conversation with you. Well, thank you so Great. much. Thank I you so much, Suchi. Really appreciate yeah, it. You. This has been the Detroit City of Design podcast. If you like what you just heard, feel free to share this episode on social media, via email, or any other means. For more info on Design Core Detroit, visit designcore.org and search the hashtag designcoredet. That's design, C-O-R-E, D-E-T. Keep up with the show by subscribing for free in your favorite podcast app. Just search Detroit City of Design. And we hope you'll join us for Detroit Month of Design this September. The Detroit City of Design podcast is produced by Olu and Company, edited by Jag in Detroit and recorded at Motor City Women Studios. Music by Diamondstein, courtesy of Assemble Sound. Special thanks to Jessica Maloof of Design Core Detroit. This podcast is a product of Design Core Detroit, part of the College for Creative Studies.